Okay, everybody, thank you very much for coming. Uh, I want to thank uh, Rabbi Schmidman for uh, donating his time to our learning. Uh, it's, uh, this tonight is also happens to be the yurt site of my mother and Linda's mom. Uh, wait, uh, I have it. I have it. Rachel Bas Shimon Michal and my mother's Devorah Bas Yeshua Heschel. And uh, my mother felt that was my, my parents taught me the importance of the synagogue and shuls and places of learning having helped started Shoyashiv which is Yeshiva in Farakwe and maybe that's part of my reason why I'm doing some of these things here and my work at Mayanot and uh, and without further ado uh, to talk about uh, today's uh, topic as well as perhaps a little bit about uh, Linda's mom and Rabbi Shmini Hi. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, thank you, Howie. May, may the Shem have Naliyah. It's a schuss to participate in, uh, in the dedication of a shir to Dvar Abbas Yoshua Heshna and Zechonah uh, And as Howie mentioned, it's also not tonight, but about a week ago, uh, it was the first yard site of Linda's mother, my mother in law, Rachel Bas Shimon Michel, Zechonah And I think it's uh, particularly appropriate that this Parsha shir should be dedicated uh, also to her memory because she was devoted to Parsha Sashavua. She famously engaged in animated discussion on the Parsha every Shabbos with the rabbi of her shul for many years. She was really passionately attached to learning the Parsha and therefore um, this uh, talk is also dedicated uh, as well to Rachel Bashimon Mechel, Yehi Zechrav Baruch. So that's... Uh, that's um, two dedications to two extraordinary women, so this uh, better be a good shear. When you think Vayikra, you think Karbanas, sacrifices. And if you're like me, then your next thought is going to be the Rambam. Uh, Specifically, the Rambam's explanation of the reasons for the uh, commandment of Karbanas. Now, the main reason advanced by the Rambam in the Moret of Uchim, in the Guide of the Perplexed, has a controversial history. And uh, his reason is utilized for support by those who reject the notion of the reinstitution of Karbanos in the base of Migdash during the time of uh, Yemasa Mashiach. I'm going to suggest to you soon that if you read the Rambam carefully, and he intended to be read carefully, uh, he might emerge a bit less radical and less controversial, but we'll come back to this in a few minutes. Perhaps the most famous critical reaction to the Rambam on Karbanos is that of the Ramban, who writes in his commentary on the Torah in this parsha, Vayikra, uh, using imagery from Yermiyahu and Malachi, he writes the following. The words of the Rambam with regard to Karbanos are nonsense. Uh, they heal a severe hurt and great difficulty lightly. And they make the table of God polluted. Now, I'm going to suggest to you soon that this critique, as sharp as it sounds, may not be quite as fundamental a critique as it has been made out to be. Okay, so I'll try to do a little bit of revisionist history on both sides. Well, so let's start with the Rambam. Okay, now the Rambam devotes 
25 chapters at the end of the Guide of the Perplexed to a systematic presentation of Tamei Mitzvahs, the reasons for the commandments, both the general goals of all the mitzvahs and specific reasons for every one of the mitzvahs of Taryag. Uh, now, as a medieval philosopher, you'd expect that the categories of his reasons are philosophical, theological, moral, for the betterment of society, and yes, he uses all of those categories. But he also advances a new novel category, um, which involves history. And we might call that the category of historical causation. And I'll, let me explain what it is. The Rambam sets up in the guide at this point a picture of the religious historical background at the time of Matan Torah. The background is that of an uh, idolatrous uh, culture. He calls this culture uh, the, the Sava, that is the Sabian uh, type of idolatry, which is characterized by the following. It's polytheistic. It denies belief in creation of the world. It denies the notion of the transcendence of God in both senses of the term. That is the ontological sense, that God um, does not exist beyond the created world. Uh, that, I'm sorry, that God exists beyond the created world. It denies that. And it denies transcendence in the epistemological sense. That is, that knowledge of God um, would, be, would transcend human reason and human experience. It denies both. Uh, and it also finally denies the possibility of supernatural miracles. So according to the Rambam in Israel, at this time, Amat and Torah were immersed in this polytheistic, idolatrous culture which was permeated with magic and myth and whose mode of worship was uh, a, an elaborate system of sacrifices, a sacrificial system involving animal sacrifices. And therefore, suggests the Rambam at this point in the guide, some of the mitzvahs and prohibitions of the Torah were intended to oppose this idolatrous culture, its mindset, and its rituals. And uh, if you look carefully at the Rambam, there seem to be two uh, ways in which uh, the Torah opposes idolatry two modes of historical causation that the Rambam uses when he's talking about the reason for Kabbanas. Uh, not for Kabbanas. Well, well, we'll get to that. The reason for the mitzvahs. Um, okay, the first mode of opposing idolatry is to directly negate and try to eliminate an idolatrous practice. Okay? For example, in part 3, chapter 45 of the guide, the Rambam deals with the Pasuk at the end of Yisro, which reads, uh, In other words, when you make uh, an altar of stones for me in the Migdash, do not build them out of cut stone, yun stone, uh, for then you will have raised your sword over it and desecrated it. So you can't build the Mizbeach and the Mikdash out of stones that have been uh, designed, cut, and hewn with, a, with an instrument, with a, an instrument of iron. Okay, that's the lot. So the Rambam in the Marin Vuchim, uh, part 3, chapter 45 says the following. As for the prohibition against hewing the stones of the altar, you know the reasons the sages have given for this. So first he quotes the very famous Mamar Chazal concerning this. Uh, namely, it is not fitting for that which shortens human life to be lifted up against that which prolongs it. In other words, don't take barzel, which is the raw material of swords and, and of violence, it shortens life, 
And don't use that to carve out these stones of the Mizbeach, which is intended to prolong life through atonement, through kapara. Okay, that's Chazal's reason. Says the Rambam, this is excellent in the manner of the Midrashim, as we have mentioned. In other words, this is a good, it conveys a good moral theological point. However, the reason for this, for this mitzvah, says the Rambam, is manifest for the idolaters used to build altars with hewn stones. And what this prohibition does, this law, it directly negates, tries to eliminate this practice. But then, uh, and by the way, uh, this uh, method of directly negating Avodah also appears in the Mishnah Torah, sparingly, but it does appear. An example would be, the best example would be Perakid Beis of Hilchas Akum, where there are several examples. The Rambam says, Ein um, Megalchen, this is Halach Aleph, the corners of the head are not to be shaved as the idolaters and their priests used to do, directly negating an idolatrous practice. Or a little later in that paragraph, there's a few examples, but here, Halacha uh, Aleph, talking about Kesoves Kaka, about those tattoos that are, those <coughs> permanent types of tattoos that are prohibited by the Pasuk and Kedoshim. So it says, uh, he says, tattooing mentioned in the Torah consists in cutting the flesh and filling up the cut with pigment, ink, or other printing matter which leaves an indelible mark. This was a custom of the heathens who used so to mark themselves for idolatry. And then a little bit later in Halachi Yad Gimel, he talks about Gedida and Srita, about cutting and making incisions in the flesh, uh, usually done in, uh, uh, which was done by Ovdeya Varizara in mourning for someone who had died. So it says that's prohibited. And even as the idolaters used to make incisions in their flesh for their dead as an expression of grief, so they used to wound themselves for the sake of idolatry. So again, this is directly negating an idolatrous practice. So that's the first mode of historical causation that the Rambam uses in uh, the guide of the perplexed for Tamiya Mitzvahs. But then there's a second mode, which is even more provocative and uh, which is not used in the Mishnah Torah. And that's the following. The Raman suggests that the Torah may take an idolatrous practice and instead of rejecting it, um, employ it, utilize it, adapt it, but redirect it and reorient it and reroute it so it is now directed to a Baruch Hu rather than to a Vodizar. And the outstanding example of that is, of course, Karbanas. And that brings us to the famous chapter in the, uh, concerning Karbanos in, in the Mora, in the Guide of the Perplexed, Part 3, Chapter 32, where the Rambam starts by talking about the Chachma uh, that God has implanted in nature. God has uh, created a nature which is characterized by gradations. Everything in nature evolves and develops Gradually, There are stages. And human beings, same thing, says the Rambam. Human nature is the same. You start with an infant. The infant eventually becomes, a, uh, eventually becomes an adult. There is, unfortunately, in the middle of teenage years and all of that. But eventually, there is this development. And along the way, the limbs develop, the functions develop, intelligence develops. You can't have... Nature does not tolerate, says the Rambam, the mercurial transitions. Sudden transitions mean a katsela, katsef, from an extreme to an extreme in the natural process. As the Rambam puts it, for a sudden transition from one opposite to another is impossible. 
And therefore, man, according to his nature, is not capable of abandoning suddenly all to which he was accustomed. If people are very accustomed to something, their mindset cannot change overnight. And he says at that time, at the time of Matan Torah, the way of life generally accepted and customary in the whole world and the universal service upon which we were brought up consisted in offering various species of living beings in the temples. What was the mode of worship? The only one that was known, the predominant known, uh, mode of worship was animal sacrifice. That's how people uh, worship the divine. And continues the Rambam, uh, in his wisdom, in Hashem's Chachma, he, used, he developed this gracious ruse in which he did not require that the law reject, abandon, or abolish these kinds of worship, but rather, because that wouldn't be possible. People can suddenly make that transition. At that time, in fact, he says it would be like a prophet coming in these days. He means the end of the 12th century. Somebody coming as a prophet and saying, okay, God has given you a law forbidding you to pray to him forbidding you to fast or to call upon him for help in misfortune, your worship should consist solely in meditation without any works at all. So if somebody came and said that, nobody could, could adapt to that. You can have a whole community of people adapting to that overnight. They, they, they're used to a different mode of worship. And therefore, he said, uh, when it came to Karbanos, uh, therefore he may be exalted, suffered the above-mentioned kinds of worship to remain. He didn't... Um, uh, uh, negate them, as, as is the case with those other examples I gave, but rather suffered them to remain, but transferred them from created or imaginary or unreal or unreal things to his own name. He redirected them. In fact, the Rambam has a few proclaim later that there are other aspects to this redirection. For example, those very animals that we use that used to be worshipped by the Egyptians and the Chaldeans among the Odea Vodizor of that time, were Dafka the animals that Hashem prescribed to sacrifice. You're sacrificing uh, the ones, the animals that were worshipped by the idolaters. And in that way, that helps to trace, um, uh, that helps to efface the traces of idolatry. Um, now, the Rambam asks uh, a little bit later in this chapter the obvious question. He says, Well, look, if, you, you will ask, if indeed there's a more elevated mode of worship, maybe prayer or, or TM or whatever it is, is a more elevated type of worship than, than, than sacrifices, then, and God is omnipotent, then despite the fact that nature runs its course very gradually, what prevented God from simply changing our nature so that at the time of Matan Torah, we could just do tefillah and we don't have to do karbonos if tefillah is a more elevated mode of worship. What was there, as he puts it, to prevent him from giving us a law in accordance with his first intention and from procuring for us, uh, to us the capacity to accept this? Make it possible for us to do it. So the Rambam's answer to that is predicated on three principles that the Rambam consistently espouses. Um, this is the Rambam Lashita. So, first principle is that uh, God will infringe supernaturally, because that would be required now. Uh, God will infringe supernaturally only on very rare occasions. The Rambam holds that the laws of nature that God has seen fit to implant in the world and which we should live by, and through which in our study of nature we actually discern the hand of Hashem, those are immutable, immutable laws of nature. And, and God will only, even though he has the power to, will only intervene at extraordinary moments in history. Matan Torah, Kriyas Yamsa, for example. Um, 
because that would not contradict the fact that there are immutable laws of nature. You can have a law with an exception to the law. But if you had countless exceptions to the law, you have no law. So therefore, when it comes to Agadita and many supernatural statements, the Raman usually interprets those metaphorically or figuratively or allegorically. And when it comes even in Chumash to certain, uh, to Bilam's uh, donkey talking or to three Malachim Kantavram, the Rambam will say they were in a Chazon Nevoah. They happened in a vision, not in reality. Otherwise, you have all these miraculous events and he feels that God uses supernatural infringement extremely sparingly. The Ramban doesn't like this. The Ramban says the Rambam is Magbir HaTeva Umegareya HaNisim. He says the Rambam tends to strengthen uh, nature at the expense of, uh, of Nisim. But in any event, that's principle number one, which the Rambam would have to change in order to, to change the nature of Am Yisrael at the time of Matan Torah to suddenly uh, be accustomed to a new mode of worship. That's A. B, even if God did that, B, uh, when there is a supernatural miracle, according to the Rambam, it's always temporary in duration, never permanent. For example, Kriyas Yamsuf, the Torah tells us right afterwards, the water went back to its full strength. Uh, and then what happens afterward, like the Gemara Nevodazar says, Olam kemin nature resumes its natural course. That's how, that's immutable laws of nature. So if God had changed the nature of Am Yisrael at this point to a new mode of worship, uh, and then that's a permanent change. It couldn't do that. And finally, or didn't want to do that, and it couldn't do it. And finally, third principle is free will. Uh, this kind of a change would be a gross violation of free will, and according to Rambam, free will is absolute. And so the Rambam uh, says that Kaddish Baruch uses this divine ruse. Now, the upshot of this is provocative uh, and controversial because one could draw the inference from this kind of uh, historical causation that the mitzvah now becomes relative to the historical circumstances. In other words, you expect a mitzvah to be absolute in its authority and legitimacy and applicability. So it should have some kind of timeless application. You do a mitzvah, it's always relevant. It has intrinsic value that's timeless. And yet, if you interpret this karbanos this way, it sounds like it's relative to the historical circumstances of the time. If the historical circumstances change in the time of Mashiach, Mashiach should come, then here your menu. And so if, if you came now, this is not what people are used to. They're not used to sacrificial worship. So then you would think the mitzvah might change according to that reasoning. And that's why some have reached that conclusion based on the Rambam uh, that there would not be reinstitution of karbanas. So I'd like to suggest, and also some have uh, pointed out on top of that, uh, those who are critics of the Rambam's uh, apparent suggestion here also point out an apparent stira in the Rambam because the Rambam in the Mishnah Torah in a number of occasions seems to, if anything, glorify Karbanas. For example, in Hechos Meila Peraches, the end of Halachaches, the Rambam uh, talks about the importance of um, observing Mishpatim and those mitzvot that are called Chukim uh, very important to observe them as well. And he says, All the karbanos are in the category that we would call chukim. Amru Chacham, and then he quotes from Perkei Avos, He says, It's on the basis of, of the service of karbanos, the world is sustained by the avodah. The world is sustained by avodah. The Rambam emphasizes this, and then he says, 
because by doing the chukim and mishpatim, that's how you can reach Olam Haba if you do all the mishpatim and all the chukim. And he adds Vehdima Torah Tsivoyalchukim. The Torah even puts Chukim first. Why? The Pasuk in Achrimos where it says, Ushmatem is Chukasai Ves Mishpatai. Asher Yasel Samadam Vichai Bahem. The famous Pasuk in Achrimos. First Chukasai Ves Mishpatai. So that's the Raman Hilchas Mila. And on top of that, you have the famous Rambam in Hilchas Malach in Perak Yedalach, where the Raman talks about the coming of Mashiach. And he says the Mashiach has to. Uh, accomplish a number of restorations. <laughs> restoration number one is the Davidic kingdom. He restores Malchus based David. Restoration number two is uh, Am Yisrael is restored to its land. Restoration number three is the base of English is restored. And then willy-nilly comes uh, number four automatically. That's the restoration of the halacha to its full pristine scope. And what's the first example the Rambam gives of the restoration of the halacha at the time of Mashiach? Makrivin Karbanos is the first example that he gives. So some critics of the Rambam said... We don't like what you wrote in part 3, chapter 32 of the guide. And then on top of that, you're contradicting yourself. So I'd like to suggest you a way to read the Rambam. I'd like to suggest that if you read the Rambam carefully, the way the Rambam always intends to be read, and sometimes demands to be read, uh, then you, uh, I think, can, can reach the, the following conclusion, that the Rambam himself never drew the inference that people have drawn over the centuries from part 3, chapter 32, that is against reinstitution of Kabbalah. So Rambam himself, I think, never drew that inference. And that there's no uh, contradiction between what he says in the guide and what he says in the Mishnah Torah. Now that sounds like a mouthful. No contradiction sounds like they're directly contradicting each other. But I'd like to suggest that there is no contradiction. And here's how. We have to go back and read the Rambam extremely carefully here. Uh, the Rambam always, as I mentioned, tells us to read carefully. goes back to his early works. In the Akdama to Perishamishna, in the Akdama to Chelek, he says that, uh, in the Perishamishna, in the Akdama to Chelek, he says that he wrote everything with meticulous care, and therefore he insists that the reader read him with meticulous care. And when he comes already to one of his later works, the Mar Nevuchim, he says in the introduction, he's even more insistent, in the introduction, he has a piece called Instruction with Respect to This Treatise. And he says here, if you wish to grasp the totality of what this treatise contains, talking about the guide of the perplexed, the Mora, so that nothing of it will escape you, then you must connect its chapters one with another. And when reading a given chapter, your intention must be not only to understand the totality of the subject of the chapter, but also to grasp each word, each word, you have to pay attention to, that occurs in it in the course of the speech, even if that word does not belong to the intention of the chapter. For the diction of this treatise has not been chosen at haphazard, but with great exactness and exceeding precision. And then he goes on and says, and nothing has been mentioned out of its place. Keep that in mind. Nothing has been mentioned out of place. Now let's go back to part 3, chapter 32 of the guide, where he gave that whole historical causation explanation for Karbanas. But this time, let's look at it in the context of the adjacent chapters. Remember, the Ramadan said there's no chapter out of place. And we will find that there is a chapter that seems to be so completely out of place that it seems to be sticking out like a sore thumb. But it can't be, right? So let's look. If we go back, the Rambam, before chapter 32, first starts setting up Tanya Mitzvahs in chapter 25. In chapter 25, he presents the proposition that all uh, that God never does anything in vain. God's actions are always purposive. They always emanate from His wisdom, not from His arbitrary will. He doesn't arbitrarily want us to obey Him. There's a reason. There are purposes. That's 25. Then in chapter 26, he applies this to mitzvahs. And he says, 
all mitzvahs are purposive. I some are called mishvatim, some are called chukim. It doesn't mean that chukim don't have reasons. It means that chukim might have reasons that are harder to uh, decipher. But all mitzvahs are purposive, beneficial, rational. And he even provides psukim as proof texts uh, in a novel way, but that's not our Indian now. And uh, also Mamari Chazal. Okay, that's in chapter 26. Now, chapter 27 and chapter 28, he discusses the general goals of the mitzvahs, that all the mitzvahs come for tikkun nefesh and tikkun guf. They come for welfare of the soul and welfare of the body. Welfare of the soul means to inculcate correct opinions and beliefs. Welfare of the body is to uh, the moral improvement of the individual and society. Fine. Then come chapters 29 and 30. Suddenly, he start, now he starts, not sudden, this is where he's leading into, now he starts with background. This is the historical background of the idolatrous culture that he was describing at the time of Matan Torah. That takes him 29 and 30 to describe. Now in chapter 32, he's going to apply that background to Karbanos and introduce the method of historical causation. But in between comes this chapter, this little chapter, chapter 31. And chapter 31, he says starting out with the, the argument that God, God's actions are always purposive. Okay, he said that right already, no? Back in 25. And then he decides to bring a Pasuk as a proof text. A Pasuk as a proof text. After he had brought all those Pasukim back in chapter 26. So what, the Ram suddenly forgot? You know, and after thought, oh, I forgot to put this Pasuk in, I'll make a whole chapter 31. It doesn't sound uh, logical. What is that Pasuk that he brings? It's from Varshana. In Vaz Hanan, uh, here, Perak Dalin, right here, so you have this well-known Pasuk. Uh, here it is. Ushmatem Vasisem Kihi Chachmaschem Avinaschem Leineho Amim You shall safeguard and perform the mitzvahs, for it is your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the Amim, of the non-Jewish peoples. Uh, what's what's going to happen? Asher... Who will hear all these chukim, the amru, and they shall say, What a wise and understanding people this is when they hear about the mitzvahs. So, ostensibly, it seems to be yet another proof text that all mitzvahs must be from God's wisdom, must be wise and purposive. But that can't be, because then he threw in a pasuk in the middle of everything. He was in the historical background of the Sabian idolatry and, and right uh, about to apply it to sacrifice, and all of a sudden he throws in one more pasuk. So it must be that chapter 31 is not an afterthought. Chapter 31 is deliberately there as an introduction to chapter 32. And the introduction to 32 is that pasuk, and that pasuk delimits, circumscribes, the inquiry, the field of inquiry that the Rambam is about to undertake in chapter 32. You can't do chapter 32 without that Pasuk. Why? Because that Pasuk is not just saying there are reasons for the commands. That was back in 26. The reasons even for the Chukim. That was also back in 26. This Pasuk, the Rambam feels, is saying that the, reason, the mitzvahs are so purposely and God's actions are so wise, ad kach, so much so, that even the non-Jewish nations <coughs> will be able to find some meaning even in the chukim, what we call chukim, that will lead them to shout from the rooftops, Rak am chacham v'navon hagoy hagadol hazeh. Okay? So now notice what the Rambam has done here. He's delimited the question and the challenge and the issue that he's undertaking here. He's not 
he's not setting up a question what are the reasons for all the mitzvahs and for all the chukim karbanos being the most outstanding example of chukim he's saying no what I want to determine here is there some dimension of chukim and the Rambam by the way he's taking that Pasuk literally in Vazchanan he's the first one to do it Chazal don't when it said Asher Yishma'unes kol ha-chukim ha-eleh the Rambam takes it literally they're going to hear the chukim parts of the Torah and that's going to cause them to say Rakam Chacham V'Navon so what is the dimension of meaning that I can find says the Rambam even in chukim that would lead non-Jews to say this is Nam Chacham V'Navon so that means he's got to immediately put aside all particularistic types of reasons so he can't start talking about Kapara, he can't start talking about the Kedusha of the Avoda, that's not going to cause them to shout from the rooftops. What he can do is find some kind of universally understandable category that the nations would appreciate. So he goes to history. That's the new, that's the novelty of historicization because he's answering this delimited question. Can I find the dimension of the mitzvah that everybody can understand and that will prove so much so I can demonstrate that the mitzvahs are so purposive it even has that result that uh, the amim could say. So here's an example of what I can say using historicization that will cause the amim to say yes, this is a wise uh, mitzvah. It was done with wisdom. Now does that mean uh, that the Rambam himself draws the conclusion that uh, Karbanos, the only dimension of meaning for Karbanos is historical causation. Not necessarily. Somebody could tentatively draw that conclusion, okay. But did the Rambam draw it? I don't think he did. And I think that's why there's no stira between the Mishnah Torah and the guy. Because as far as the Rambam is concerned, this is one dimension. There are other dimensions. The other dimensions are the more particularistic ones that the Omeid al Havoda, Shloshadarim al and with the passage of time, the Avoda becomes even more and more integral to the religious experience of Judaism. He's ready to accept all that. And uh, therefore, when it comes to Moshe Mashiach, he says, Makrivim Karbanos. I don't think that's a stira because I don't think the Rambam had to necessarily conclude that. Um, uh, that there would not be reinstitution of sacrifice. Someone tenably could uh, uh, conclude it, and it's a very striking mode of analysis for the Raman to use because it's, it's highly controversial. Uh, but I don't think you have to say that the Rambam uh, himself drew, drew that conclusion, therefore it's not necessarily contradictions all over in his work concerning Karbanos. That's what I would suggest to you on the Rambam. But I still have to tell you something about the Ramban. Okay, now the Ramban has uh, we have enough time? Yeah, just enough time. Is that clock good? It's uh, no, it's three. Okay, okay. Okay. The Ramban. Now the Ramban has been uh, identified by some scholars over the years as having some kind of fundamental methodological machlokas with the Ramban, uh, concerning which this is the paradigmatic example, Karbanas, uh, when it comes to the issue of Tamei Mitzvahs. Uh, according to this uh, identification of the Machlokas, there are some who say that the Ramban will insist on intrinsic uh, reasons for the commandments so that uh, there's always a, t- there's a timeless meaning to what you do. There's some kind of inherent intrinsic significance to the act, the Maseh mitzvah, as opposed to the Ramban who's willing to use what we just uh, described all this time, historical causation, an extrinsic type of reason for the commandments. Okay, uh, what's the paradigmatic example of that? The, what we quoted earlier, the Ramban's um, critique of the Rambam that he said to Vrei Havai when he was talking about what the Rambam said 
uh, is the reason for Karbanas. And actually, in his commentary on this Pasha, uh, Vayikra, Paragalaf, Pasad test, the Ramban uh, focuses on just part of the Rambam's explanation for Karbanas. Not the main part that we saw in part 3, chapter 32, but the part that comes later uh, to the effect that because the idolaters worship sheep, goats, and oxen, therefore God instructed B'nai Yisrael to slaughter specifically those, those uh, species, thereby making known that the very act that was considered uh, by idolaters to be the extreme sin should be performed as a mitzvah, as service to God and redirected to God. And in this manner, uh, traces of incorrect idolatrous opinions would be uh, blotted out. Uh, and that's where the Ramban uh, says that these are Devei Havai, V'Shachan Hashem Megual, etc. Uh, and then he proceeds to offer what you might call more intrinsic interpretations, a mystical interpretation that we won't get into now, and uh, a symbolic interpretation that's quite well known, uh, that is that when someone transgresses against one's master, against the Kodesh then it's really that the person's own dam should be on the Mizbech, Mishpach on the Mizbech. But God in Zrachman has accepted the animal in lieu of us and given us an opportunity for Shuvah and Kapara. So that already is a more intrinsic, symbolic meaning to the uh, sacrifice, uh, rather than the historical uh, uh, causation that the Rambam suggested. Uh, and therefore, uh, the ostensible conclusion from this on the part of many scholars is that the Ramban rejects in principle viewing any mitzvah as a response to historical circumstances rather than as timeless commands of intrinsic worth. But I think this is not correct. I, I don't think we're dealing with a, a fundamental divergence on this issue and I'll try to prove it to you. First of all, when it comes to this uh, piece in Vayikra concerning Karbanas, if you read the whole Ramban, uh, it reveals that he has two modes of objection to the Rambam's historical explanation for Karbanas. The first centers upon the explicit evidence of the Pesukim. Uh, if sacrifices have no inherent value and they're intended only to eliminate the false beliefs of idolaters, then ask the Ramban, why does the Torah consistently stress the fact that the Karbanas themselves are reach nichoach l'ashem? That they, they are... Uh, Karbanas in particular are pleasing to Hashem. How are they so pleasing, especially pleasing if they have no intrinsic value, if they're only negating some other uh, uh, action by idolaters? Uh, and in fact, in, in a drush of the Ramban's Torah Tashem Tamima, uh, he elaborates upon this and he cites the fact that the Torah speaks a greater length about Karbanos than about any other law and that Karbanos are a precondition for the manifestation of the Shina in the Mishkan and in the base Migdash. So there must be something more inherently important about Karbanas. That's his first mode of objection. And then his second means of response consists of logical objections. He says, wait a second, if you slaughter the animals that the idolaters worship, maybe their reaction would be different. Maybe they would consider it a, a, a mark of respect and honor that you're picking the after <coughs> the animals that they think are the highest of, and those are the ones that you choose to sacrifice. And also he points out that Karbanas were brought by Hevel and by Noah. And that was before the advent of these idolaters. And uh, if that's the case, he opposes the Rambam on the historical reason for Kabbana. So we, we can only conclude then that the Rambam opposed the Rambam in this manner because of logical difficulties and because the Psukim themselves seem to emphasize the intrinsic and inherent importance of of uh, Karbanos by saying the Reach Nichoch Hashem, but I don't think we're justified in basing a clear-cut methodological controversy on this evidence alone. Beyond that, if you look at the Ramban throughout his Parashala Torah, and if you look at every time he uh, mentions the Rambam 
uh, in the area of Tamei Mitzvot, you find the following. Uh, there are at least eight more instances in which the Ramban opposes Ramban regarding the reason for a specific mitzvah, um, where he quotes him and then opposes him. Three of those cases are historical, specifically historical reasons that the Ramban gave. And the Ramban opposes him. But in each one of those cases, he doesn't oppose it because he has a fundamental disagreement with the Ramban in using historical reasons. He opposes it either because of logical objections or because the psukim read differently. I'll give you an example. Uh, the, the end of Yisrael, the very pasuk that we used as uh, previously on okay? not to build the mizbeach out of yun or cut stone. So you know what the Rambam said already from part 3, chapter 45, that that was against the idol. It was to, to directly negate the idolatrous practice. The Rambam rejects this because, he says, um, you can't use iron to cut the stone. But if you use clay kesef, if you use the silver implement, that would be okay. And if that's the case, then you can have cut stone. So how could the Rambam say that you're negating an idolatrous practice? You could have the cut stone if you used a different implement, not the one that was referred to in the Pasuk. And then he clinches it by saying, Bavur Zeh. Because of this, because of this logical objection, the Rambam's reason is not correct. He doesn't say because he used the historical uh, reason, because he's trying to negate a Zara. He says because of this logical objection from Halacha, therefore the Rambam's reason is not correct. And still more revealing is the Rambam's response to the Rambam's reason for the prohibition of dam, of eating dam. He says the Rambam linked that to the heathen practices of the Chaldeans. And the, Ramb- the Ramban says about that, after he quotes the Rambam, Elu Dvarim he says, these are reasonable words. However, hapsukim lo yorukim. But the psukim don't seem to support him on this. Why? Because it con- constantly refers to the fact that Damu Nefesh, the Ramban thinks there's something else going on here. But he says, the Dvarim are in fact miyushavim. And finally, I should say, uh, a couple more minutes, we find at least five instances in which the Ramban quotes the Rambam's view, either as an undisputed reason for a mitzvah or as the probable reason or as an equally valid reason when it comes to Tamei mitzvahs. And three of those instances are of the historical variety. There are three times in Shadnez, in Orla, and in the Isra, in this parsha, Isra of Sor and Vash on the Mitzvah, each one of those times the Ramban quotes the Ramban and leaves it, either as an approvingly or as an equally valid answer. So clearly, you cannot assume a distinct methodological disagreement between them on this point because the Ramban actually allows the possibility of historical um, uh, reasons. He's less likely to do it. He prefers offering an inherently, intrinsically, a meaningful, timeless uh, value to the mitzvah. Uh, but he's okay with it when it happens. And of course, when Chazal themselves, in the case of Losi Talafa Shirah Kaleh, or in the case of in Shoftim, or Losakim Lacham that in the temple, in the, in the Mikdash, you should not have this, this tree or this uh, pillar that's made out of one stone. And Chazal themselves, in that case, to give the uh, reason that this is negating the practices of Zara. So the Ramban himself, of course, quotes that as well. So does Rashi. But if you wanted to find somebody who really has a fundamental methodological disagreement with the Ramban over uh, historical reasons, then you're looking at Rav Shamshim Hirsch because 
that not only does he uh, disagree with the Rambam on this entire method, if you read him in the 18th letter of the 19 letters, but even when it comes to what Chazal himself said, he does not quote Chazal, he finds some other symbolic reason in Choret, it's very end of Choret, uh, for the prohibition has to do with uh, the stone and the tree representing nature, and the Mishkan, the Mikdash, is supposed to elevate the human being above and beyond nature to a relationship directly with the Kaddish Baruch he manages to, uh, to to eliminate any possible reference to historical uh, causation of any sort. He's the one who has a uh, fundamental methodological disagreement with the Rambam, not the Rambam. And hopefully, uh, uh, I don't know if the was Reach Nechach Hashem, but hopefully it was Reach Nechach to, to all of you who graciously came. Uh, good evening. Uh, uh, next to uh, yeah, next to Perk, then Rabbi Weeder, and then we'll be two weeks of Haggadah with Rabbi Weiner and uh, Rabbi Shachter.